0: Morning, Glory America. you here. We are four hours away from President Donald Trump, four hours left in the Obama era. I am at the Kirby Center, the outpost in Washington, D.C., of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. This is the Hillsdale Hour, but I've been spending all day here, and I'll be back next week after I go up to New York. And uh, Matt Spaulding runs the Kirby Center, and uh, Dr. Larry Aron drops in occasionally to see what's going on here. I think they keep much of it from him uh, so that it runs efficiently and without problem. But today, uh, and Matt, uh, welcome. It's great to have you here. What does the Kirby great to be Center do?
1: We, we do everything we can to radiate the mission of Hillsdale College. We teach. Uh, we teach our students, but we're here. We're also trying to teach a lot of people who need to be taught. Uh, members of Congress and their staffs and now incoming people who work in administrations.
0: And, and how has it been during the transition? Has it been percolating with ideas and energy and lots of people excited? Well, you, you know, it was, it's, it's interesting. Before, before the election,
1: you need going back to the primaries. There was a lot of confusion, especially on the right. Um, not as much opposition as you would think in this city, although from some very vocal, of course. But from the most politicos, if you will, uh, just, what's going on trying to get a feel you could start to sense those tectonic plates moving and they didn't quite know what to do about it what's happened in, in, in the general election they almost as a mass group started to uh, to get a hold of this most of them not thinking he would win till the very end if that and now the the mood has changed those, those plates have shifted he broke through in a way that I think opens up politics this reminds me of you know the 19th century this is the way Politics is an open field. People are maneuvering. There are all sorts of ideas. These ideas that have been sitting on the table for so long are now percolating forward. Now it's a different game. What do we do? What do we do first? What's our strategy? How do we actually accomplish
0: this? It's open field politics, and it's wonderful to watch. Two years ago, I believe, Dr. Arn, also my guest in the studio, went to the Republican retreat and urged them to re-embrace their Article One responsibilities. That's an interesting message to see. They're, they're retreating again to Philadelphia next week, Dr. Arndt, And now they have to exercise their Article 1 responsibilities with an Article 2 colleague.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, first of all, I submit that uh, Trump has been very good in speech on this question of the separation of powers for a long time. Um, he never slips. I can't find any instance of him slipping to say, I'm going to do it on my own. Uh, which Obama loved to say, you know, that great constitutionalist who served his entire eight years without a touch of scandal, as we love to say today. Um, so they're on to their Article One powers, and Trump is on record saying they should exercise them. And what does that mean? It, it, it would have to mean over time that the Congress would pass real laws again and this 150 or so regulatory agencies that passed now, the vast majority of our laws would not be lawmaking bodies anymore. And that's what I contend for, and they should work their way back toward that, in my opinion.
0: Kevin McCarthy, your friend and mine, and I know Matt's, has got a uh, a list. He's checking it twice. Of all the rules, and they were vast number of rules that rolled out in the last, uh, I believe it's, 120 legislative days, which goes much further back. And they can be repealed by act of Congress, but not collectively. Through the Congressional Review Act. And they're going to do that. They're going to do that. And they've already passed the RAINS Act again. And and so explain what the RAINS Act is for people.
1: Uh, The RAINS Act is a um, uh, law that says any regulation that has the effective amount, uh, over $100 million, I think is the 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 amount, has to come back to Congress for their positive approval before it goes into effect. It is a massive wrench. It's not a perfect fix by any means. It does not solve the problem. But it's a massive wrench to throw into the mechanism, which along with the Congressional Review Act, I think is Congress's, this is a first step. It's uh, an important step, but it staunches the bleeding, if you will. The point Dr. Arn makes is absolutely right. Congress needs to actually go back and legislate. They've for too long given away their legislative power to these agencies. Checking them after the fact isn't enough. They need to reclaim that by getting control of the budget, by getting control of authorizations and appropriations. And if Article I means that, which it might in this relationship between a Republican Congress and a Trump administration, they're going to have to actually legislate so, oddly enough, in my opinion, I think the fact of having Donald Trump in the presidency and a Republican Congress might do more for the separation of powers in a good constitutional sense than if Hillary Clinton had been elected.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I, I also think they're going to have their quarrels and they're going to have their disagreements, but that will be worked out the right way. In the course of uh, writing this new book that I put out, The Fourth Way, I include an appendix that was in, uh, inspired by Dr. Arndt. It's the complete text of the Homestead Act. I did so because you like to point out it's four pages long, yeah. and it settled some vast amount of the country, and it had very little direction, but it did have a very specific purpose, and it laid out what you what you could and could not do. I would not be unhappy if this new Congress passed a lot of short laws, Dr. Arndt, a lot of short laws that were very specific as to what would happen, not giving authority to agencies to develop, but just set up a national marketplace immediately, for example, on repair and repeal, uh, repair and replace, and, and move forward very quickly to get to 350 ships. Are you an optimist for their moving quickly?
2: Well, I have never seen, as Matthew said, I've never seen a Congress so so uh, focused on this question. They, uh, uh, One of the things that changed in the last 10 years is that people in Washington, the best people, started becoming afraid. Afraid that we're losing control of all this, afraid that there's a decline that's going to follow from that that can't be stopped. And also, along with afraid, frustrated. Because, it you know, to repeal anything the regulatory state does, you need both Houses of Congress and the president. And that's a rare gift, right? Obama had it for two years. Look what he did with it. And so... They've got their minds around the problem, and here now they've got the means, and I am optimistic that they will do some fundamentally important things.
0: Now, the Reed rule established two precedents. One, that nominations to both the executive and the judicial branch would be confirmed by simple majority. And they like to argue it doesn't apply to the Supreme Court, but in fact it's the same kind of nomination as the other one, so it will. But it also broke the rules of the Senate. It said that you can change the rules of the Senate with a simple majority vote. My way of thinking, politics being politics, we get one rule change. We get to do not only the nominations, but we get one rule change, and it might be about the filibuster. Are you a fan of the legislative filibuster?
2: Uh, Well, read the next uh, imprimis by our friend and my former employee, Congressman Thomas McClintock, and uh, he, he explains that what we need to do is restore the filibuster because the filibuster is a very old rule and what it says simply is if there's somebody there wanting to debate the issue and can contribute in the eyes of the speaker something important then the debate goes on in other words it was devised to protect debate whereas what it's for now is to stop debate any senator can walk in and or any what is it any 40 senators can walk in and stop the debate altogether so, the, back when it was in the transition, that's when you got senators standing on the floor reading the phone book. That should have been ruled out of order as not apposite or contributing to the debate. But then they got tired of that, so now you don't even have to read from the phone book. You just have to say. And so, it, it paralyzes the Senate. And that, in other words, put the filibuster back like it was, is what McClintock, who's, by the way, a reverential and deeply knowledgeable legislator. He was made for that job, and he knows all about it. Yeah, well,
1: so, I, I guess, go ahead. Well, as I say, so one key aspect of the argument uh, is the, the claim of the Senate is that it's an ongoing body, body that never changes. But effectively what that means is the Senate doesn't actually introduce new rules every session. It's a misnomer. The Senate doesn't have new rules. It doesn't redo its rules. It's based on precedent. Right. Uh, but a Congress can't bind a future Congress. So there is actually a question here as to when and how the Senate can change its rules. If it chooses to change its rules, it could do it mid-course if it wanted to change those rules. Uh, so they could make adjustments as opposed to
0: merely interpreting existing rules that go back to the 18th century. And the, and the leader, um, Majority Leader McConnell, is a, is a fan of the rules and of the continuing body and is is slow and loath to change them. But I think that the pace of the growth of government has created a crisis moment where they may have to do just that. And we will see it very, very quickly in the new Congress. When we come back, we're going to look at the most recent inaugural addresses, those of Clinton and of Barack Obama, and suggest how they were different in kind from the ones that we've talked about thus far, Lincoln's second, George Washington's first, President Reagan's first. They've done a different sort of thing in recent years and I don't think you're going to see the same sort of thing being done today by President Trump. Don't go anywhere except to hillsdale.edu hillsdale.edu Of course you can also head over to uh, Hewitt.com and get a copy of this amazing, wonderful new book, The Fourth Way, which publishes on Monday. I urge you to get it, read it, memorize it. We have an agenda. It needs to roll forward. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 22 minutes after the Hour America. I'm Hugh Hewitt from the Kirby Center in the studios that Vince Benedetto and Bold Gold Media Group and the Bold Gold Broadcasting Media Foundation built for us that I use whenever I'm in town. Dr. Larry Arnn is my guest. Matthew Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center, is away for a little bit. Dr. Arn, you did what I didn't do. I read Washington. I read Lincoln. I read Reagan. You went further above and beyond. You read Clinton and Obama. What did those addresses tell us about both what they said and what we can expect from Donald J. Trump today?
2: Uh, well, uh, in my opinion, Obama's first inaugural is much better than Clinton's, but Clinton's is immediately revealing. Uh, I'm going to read it to you, the first paragraph. My fellow citizens, today we celebrate the mystery of American renewal. This ceremony is held in the depth of winter, but by the words we speak and the faces we show the world, we force the spring. A spring reborn in the world's oldest democracy that brings forth the vision and the courage to reinvent America. So, first of all, this is before the days of global warming, or he would have never said that. <laughs> but uh, but second, it's an assertion of power, as his first words, yeah. right? A, a power even over the climate, but to reinvent the whole country. Uh, he goes on, When our founders boldly declared America's independence to the world and our purposes to the Almighty, they knew that America, to endure, would have to change, right? Well, I don't, you know, I don't think that's one of the main themes, right? Uh, except understood, by the way, within the realm of prudence. But the purpose has never changed. No. Nope. Well, he's going to reinvent the whole thing, right? And that's so opposite Reagan's first inaugural, where he begins by saying to a lot of us here today, he means him and his family's friends, this is a momentous occasion but to the nation it's a commonplace
0: occasion yeah.
2: and it's the glory of the nation that it is that the and so like obama reagan begins humbly uh, or, uh, Obama begins humbly as Reagan, and most of them do. Clinton is right out there with assertions of power. It's really remarkable. And you should go read them, they're easy to find on the internet, and read the beginnings of both of them, you'll see how opposite it is. Obama's is a better speech, in my opinion, and it's very good. Uh, also, and there, and, uh, it uses some of the arts of Franklin Roosevelt. Ah. Uh, you, you uh, you, you wanted to read...
0: 1941.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and we might
0: yet get there in the next segment. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I'll, I'll, those arts are to take the language of America, which is the magic of America, and the key, in my opinion, to unlock the politics of America. And Franklin Roosevelt is the one who showed how to take the Declaration of Independence and even the Constitution, although he didn't talk about that as much, and used those to build the progressive state to redefine the meaning of the term rights franklin roosevelt did all of that and he is the first really massively successful progressive partly by not using that term mm-hmm. and uh and so obama follows him in this and so there are really handsome passages i'll i'll uh at the beginning here's how he starts <laughs> My fellow citizens, I stand here today humbled by the task before us, grateful for the trust you've bestowed, mind, mindful of the sacrifices borne by our ancestors. Now, that's much shrewder and and, high, than Clinton, and yeah. more high-minded than Clinton. Much. Because whether you believe in the Constitution or not, and I can show you places where... where uh, well, Obama says explicitly often, many places, that we have to overcome the intentions of the founders. But here, n- none of that in this speech. He retranslates those intentions instead, and I have a couple of examples to read.
0: Uh, when we come back from break. Don't go anywhere, America. Uh, we will be right back with um, Dr. Larry Arnn from Hillsdale College, one 800 234 We are three and a half hours away from the peaceful transfer of power and President Donald J. Trump's four years in office. And a lot of people are holding their breath, and it's going to be an interesting speech, and you wouldn't want to miss it, and this gets you in the mind. Victor Davis Hanson joins us as well. from phone from California as we comment on this day. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, America. To you, and it's Inauguration Day in Washington. DC and I am at the Kirby Center, Hillsdale College's outpost of reason in the shadow of the Capitol. 1789, George Washington gave the first inaugural address. 76 years later, Lincoln gave the greatest inaugural address, the second inaugural address. 76 years after that, FDR gave his third inaugural address as war loomed in 1941. And here we are, 76 years after FDR's third with Donald Trump. Joining Larry Arn, who is the president of Hillsdale College in studio with me, and Matthew Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center in studio with me, is Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, a friend of Hillsdale and of this show from faraway California. Dr. Hansen, welcome. What do you expect from uh, from Donald Trump today, and do you think he's going to fit into the 76 year cycle of fairly significant speeches?
3: I don't know about that, but I think he's turning the world upside down every moment that he's in the national scene, whether it's his comportment or his language or his manner or his agenda, we've never seen anything like it. We've never, I mean literally we've never had somebody without political experience or military experience, but and also no one who's ever taken the presidency has been given such a mandate uh, in the Electoral College, but more importantly from the previous president, whether we like it or not, Barack Obama Handed him over, a, 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 you know. I'm not sure it's a wise thing, but he handed him over a protocol from executive orders to uh, making deals abroad without the full consent of the Senate as the Iran deal. I mean, it's 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 a sense of empowerment I haven't seen in my lifetime.
0: Now, are you an optimist, VDH?
3: Yeah, I am. I think so. I think people that are on the left, even privately, will concede to you they don't think things could have gone on as they were. It was sort of like people, maybe even some conservatives thought, I think wrongly, but they thought Hoover couldn't gone on as he was. There were too many people that were not connected with the government until FDR came in, and then people thought after FDR it couldn't go on like FDR was going, but just the debt and the division and the racial polarization and uh, the environmental uh, extremism, uh, the war against fossil fuels, the uh, the mess in the Middle East with Russia, China. I think people, even on the left, thought, you know what, we like Barack Obama, we worship him, but privately, it can't go on like this.
0: Uh, Dr. Larry Arndt, you heard VDHB optimistic there about that, but at the same time, uh, the shards... Of anger that are flying off from the left, whether it's Barbara Streisand in an invective-filled piece in the Hollywood Reporter, or Robert De Niro outside of Trump Tower, or last night's uh, pepper spray outside of the Press Club, it's not what we're normally used to. So I'm, it's hard to be optimistic for me.
2: Oh well, um, uh, there is a fundamentally divided country here between two sets of principles that are not compatible with one another. And that's coming to a head. uh, So the way I'm optimistic is this. We're going to have a big quarrel about all this stuff, and I hope and believe that it will be peaceful, even though the words will be violent. But that's what's going to happen because of all this. I used to say, you know, six months ago, I said, uh, it doesn't matter who's, who's elected president. By February and March, America's going to be a pretty unhappy country.
0: You used to say as well, fundamental things are afoot, and they are very much afoot today. Matthew Spaulding, your students, what are they like? Are they they anxious? Are they happy? Are they, you know, hey, let's get to D.C. and get part of this deal? I think they're very excited.
1: Uh, Difference between last semester and this semester. Last semester, they were a little unsure what was happening. They had people following different candidates, uh, but they were all just generally friendly. Uh, Now now they're very excited to see change and see things happen. I, I think this is going to take a while to work out. Uh, we're going to see a lot of change rapidly. I hope to see a lot rapidly, including reversing some orders today. Congress is uh, chomping the bit. I've been talking to them about going up to Philadelphia and what they're uh, what they're planning. Uh, but this is a kind of shift with these two diametrically opposed views of, of, of the world before us. It's going to take a while to work itself out of the system. There's a lot of things that have to be staunched. Um, and then beyond that, there's a lot of legislation backed up. I mean, it's, it's, they've got a whole list on tables of, of legislation backed up, ready to go. Uh, it, to turn the course, to turn the ship, if you will, is going to take a lot of work. There's going to be a lot of opposition. Uh, but they're going to have to stay uh, intensely focused on that objective to to accomplish it.
0: Victor Davis Hansen oh, Go ahead,
1: Dr. I just Arden. want
2: to add, there's a reason for optimism outside our studio window, and I can Well, she just walked away. But I can't say her name. But she's uh, one of my students, and she's just been hired as one of President Trump's speechwriters.
0: Well, that is a good. I, I'm, I'm happy about that. That means long, windy speeches. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Victor Davis Hanson, uh, you are a military historian. When Rex Tillerson testified, he said that China cannot be allowed to continue to build those islands that 's a confrontational statement we have a, an, a we have an interesting world it 's coming apart. We have Russia in the Middle East. We have Aleppo in ruins we don 't have the assets we had even eight years ago, much less sixteen years ago. How long does it take Donald Trump to rebuild the American military so that it is effectively a deterrent
3: well, I think it 's going to take two or three years. I think deterrence is very hard to acquire and very easy to to forfeit, which we saw with Obama and uh, we 're going back to uh, a classical approach to foreign policy and things like deterrence balance of power i'm sure he's going to talk to russia he's going to talk to china he's going to balance both triangulate he's going to be very supportive of our allies and then very hostile to our enemies which will bring clarity and as far as it, get, getting back to the economy you i think three and a half percent or four percent gdp will stop a lot of opposition and that, that's what their aim is so if they can deregulate, promote fossil fuels, export some energy, redo the tax code, and I know they're going to have problems with a deficit right away by doing that, but if they were to achieve four percent GDP, it'll be sort of like Reagan in 83, 84, 85, where all of a sudden we were watching movies about the day after, and that Reagan from the Pershing missiles to the confrontation uh, with the Russians was going to blow up the world, as Hollywood told us, and suddenly the economy took off, and uh, it was morning in America again. So opposition and ideological uh, criticism of Trump will all hinge on whether he can get the economy to 35 to 4% GDP.
0: You know, the, the most common refrain is that he's a traitor, that he's a Putinite, that he is in the pocket of the Kremlin. How do you respond to that, Victor? Because I think it's silly, but a lot of people repeat it endlessly.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know how. It's silly for two reasons. You One, Reset was the uh, brainchild of Barack Obama. He, criti- he came into office criticizing George Bush more than he did uh, Vladimir Putin. I mean, he canceled missile defense. There was the hot mic about being flexible after the election. He ridiculed Romney. He didn't do much about Crimea. And then he did the worst of all things. He talked very loudly and carried a twig, and by that I mean he made fun of Putin he said he was into macho stick, he made fun of his bare chest, he said he was a class cut-up, and all of that just enraged Putin, and Putin didn't want, he didn't follow that universal ecumenical agenda that Obama preached, he thought, you know, this guy is not a nationalist, I don't know how to deal with him, but I don't like to be lectured by somebody who has a lot of military strength at his disposal, but is afraid to use it against me, and whether that's fair or not, he, he developed sort of an emotional contempt, so I think... Trump is going to go back and think there's areas where we can't work with this guy and maybe the best man win, but there's other areas in the Middle East with radical Islam and with maybe nuclear proliferation where we can use him against the Chinese, vice versa. And if Trump could do something to pull Putin away from Hezbollah and Iran and say, you know, these guys are not in your interest, that would be much more, uh, I think, helpful been coming in with this reset of a reset of a reset, and we're just getting an endless cycle, and I don't think that's going to help anybody.
0: I I want to close this segment and next by talking about President Obama, who's got three and a half... Hours left as president, he's been a disaster, uh, fundamentally a disaster. And I don't care what his rating is right now; it will be a record that will be uh, shameful as it is explored over the decades and centuries. But what he got wrong most, I think, was his. He fundamentally didn't know what he was doing. There are two views: that he was an ideologue, and that he was incompetent. I'm of the incompetent view that O W I O double H Obama is in over his head. Doctor Arn, what was he a leftist or was he? Chance the Gardener,
2: uh, Or both. I, I, or both. <laughs> yeah, I think he was... Uh, I think he's a leftist, a radical leftist. I think he was raised that way. I think his appointments were that way. And I think that he was trying to remake America, as he says in his first inaugural address. And I think that he... Uh, I think that... Uh, Uh, liberals when they get a big majority, they all think everybody's going to love them. And they're very excited. I know the Obama people came in and and the buzz from them, people I knew, was this is going to be great. Everybody's going to just love us. They sounded like Donald Trump talks today, right? And and, uh, they were surprised when people didn't. But remember, they doubled down, right? After they lost the Massachusetts election for the Senate in Massachusetts, for God's sake, and lost their filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, they they rammed the Obamacare through. That's very determined, right? And then to say to the Congress, I have a phone and I have a pen, and I'm going to act without you. If you don't, he gave them a bunch of deadlines about immigration. If you don't do something about this, in six months, I will, Right. That thing. that he, I I never heard that tone from any president But before. he ex-
0: expected, the reason I think he's incompetent, he expected that the courts would go along, and of course the Fifth Circuit wouldn't. But you, but go ahead, Matt. But,
1: but of course that's, these things go along together, don't they, right? Uh, in, in history, great ideologues tend to be naive about what they can and accomplish. cannot get done and accomplish because of other people. They assume other people with them, right? This is what, the problem when you believe in the arc of history, yeah. right? If you're not on board... You must be an idiot yourself. It also tends towards tyranny because you tend to be forceful about it. You tend to force your opinion. So it's the combination of those things. He, he, they were very naive about what what would happen in terms of other people, in terms of the courts, in terms of how people would go along, in terms of the American people. They assumed people want to be merely led
3: by them. Victor, what do you think? I don't think I think you're right, you, but I don't think they're mutually incompatible. I mean. I think he's an idologue, as Larry said, but I don't think he was, and as Matthew said, I don't think he was very skillful about advancing that agenda, because uh, look at the agenda now. I mean, Obamacare is going to be reversed. Nobody says the bombing of Libya was a good thing. Syria is a disaster. Pulling the troops out of Iraq was probably the worst thing. Yes. Uh, analogous to getting out of Korea in 1955, perhaps. Russia is a mess. China is a mess. Uh, we've, we've added almost $10 trillion to the debt. We've had zero interest. So the the actual uh, realization, the reification of that, of that vision that Larry talked about was incompetent, but it was a vision nonetheless that he wanted to move the country left. And, and his legacy is that rhetorically he did it because he did things that nobody would have imagined. I mean, he had the singer who did Pimp a Butterfly with a white dead judge on the White House lawn to the toast of rappers. He had that guy at the White House. He had another rapper who's... Uh, probation it went off his ankle. So he, culturally, he moved the country far to the
0: left. We're going to come back and talk about that, culturally, where we are, with one more segment three hours away from the end of the Obama era, and where is race in America. Don't go anywhere, it's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt. I have I resolved to come to the inauguration and cover it from Hillsdale College, because Hillsdale is doing its best to keep the Constitution front and center through hillsdale.edu. The courses that they teach there the people that they raise up, mostly and the students and the impact that they have. So pleased that Dr. Arndt spent two hours with me today. Matt Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center, was here with me. By phone, Victor Davis Hanson, a frequent visitor at Hillsdale campus, is with us. Gentlemen, we only have seven minutes, but I want to ask, at the end of the presidency of the first African-American president, after we have read Lincoln's second inaugural and thinking about the Civil War, How are race relations in America, and what did President Obama do or not do about them? We'll start with you, Victor, and go to Matthew, and then to Larry. Uh, What do you think he did or did not do in this respect?
3: Well, he reversed Martin Luther King's idea that the the content of your character was more important than the color of your skin. So in the age of Obama, your color, your ethnic background, your religion was no longer incidental to your character. It was essential And he sliced and diced the electorate, and then he glued together from identity groups 51%. So we live in a country now, I think, partly due to Obama, that how you look or your superficial appearance is supposed to govern your worldview and even your character. And I think it's historically the road to Armageddon, whether you look at Austria-Hungary or Rwanda or the Balkans. So that's going to have to cease, Or This experiment in multiracial democracy is not going to work anymore.
0: Matthew Spaulding.
1: No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think you have to connect this to the fact that Obama very intentionally in his inaugural addresses and throughout wanted to change the direction of the country away from its grounding in as it was understood in the Declaration of Independence. So his rhetoric turned away from this from the very beginning. But the one thing I would add to that is look at the statistics of what have ha- has happened to the country over these, these eight years. Black poverty has gone up. Children you know, born in, in black households are, are worse than they were off. He started his administration wanting to talk about the black family, and he's done nothing about it. Instead, he's really uh, focused and pushed towards a radical division of races, uh, a a more class-based society and division. Uh, This is not at all a presidential way to solve this problem, and I think it's probably hurt his cause and probably the cause of, of black leadership. Uh, perhaps in both parties, but especially in the Democratic Party, if it's now associated with this kind of radical agenda, and that's not good for, for the future uh, as he understood it especially, but also for the future of the country.
2: Larry Arn. Uh I'll say a word about how he was able to do this. Uh, Obama is very good, sometimes beautiful, about the claims of America that every citizen is equal and just the same. Michelle Obama said the other day she can't understand why race has to be a category. She said that, right? But th- but then look at these uh this uh relationships with the local cops. So in Ferguson, right? This this young man was shot by a cop, Michael Brown. Yeah. And he had threatened the cop, right? And there's proof about that. And and what does he do? He sends the justice department to retrain the cops over and over place after place baltimore everywhere right and that's all Chicago, Cleveland. that's all yep. racist racial ground stuff right and those categories are the basic uh, uh, operating principle of the administration of the federal government today and he did that and he did that while claiming otherwise And I think that's artful. I think he knew what he was doing.
0: But he has had a result, and it's a great place to end. Victor Davis Hanson, in your City Journal piece, which I recommend to everyone, they can Google Victor Davis Hanson City Journal, you point out that it scares the Democrats that Donald Trump doubled Mitt Romney's vote total among African Americans and might double it again. In other words, that maybe the vice grip of the Democratic Party on ethnic minorities in America has been broken by Trump, and that just causes them to shudder.
3: I think so. I mean, remember, he doesn't have to win 51% of the so-called Latino or Asian or uh, black vote. He just has to get about 35% because so fragile is that coalition, and, and that translates into alienated, alienating people in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Ohio that they need a super... A turnout of minorities. And if they don't get over 35 or 36 percent, the coalition is shattered. And I think that's what Bannon and Conway and Trump are after.
0: Do, uh, do the three of you very quickly think that President Trump, when he addresses the nation today, will reference race? Matthew? I, I, I think he won't directly.
1: I think he will speak to Americans as a nation and as citizens. And if he follows the rhetoric he's had in the primary, which has been very good on this, uh, that is the way you should talk about the racial question in America. We are all united as a, a, a common
0: country. What do you think, Dr. One he
1: minute. Did,
2: he does sometimes, always to deny that uh, any identity group is not included as a citizen. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if he does, but it will be to make that point.
3: Do, uh, Dr. Hansen. I agree with uh, Larry. I think he'll do that. I think his view of race is that if, if you get up to 4% GDP racial differences become irrelevant because the economy is going so so hot that you need to hire everybody and there's going to be a shortage of labor and that's going to lift all growth. He's a businessman and that's how he looks at the world.
0: I think he's going to talk about race by talking about police. Uh, I, I don't know that there's another way for him to do it that would uh, surprise me less than if he talks about honoring the men and women in blue. We will see. We will see. Tomorrow, we are looking ahead three hours from now, President Donald Trump, and we are optimists. Thank you, Dr. Arn, Thank you, Matthew Spaulding. Thank you, Hillsdale, Dr. Hansen for joining us as we launch this Inauguration Day. What a
3: day it is. And we're back Monday to talk about the week that is amazing on the next It show.